Okay, it is very, very warm, so uh, I'll try and keep your attention. My job really is to teach you God's Word faithfully. Your job is to try and stay awake and listen. If you finish your job before I finish mine, uh, try not to snore. Let's just bow our hearts, shall we? Father, we just thank you for your word. Lord, it is living and powerful. And Father, may it challenge us today. Lord, may it speak to our hearts and may it encourage us. Uh, Lord, help us as we learn to walk by faith, Lord, in the grace that you give. Uh, Lord, just speak to us now, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're going to carry on in Mark's gospel. Um, as we've said before, Mark just goes through so many of these miracles, little snapshots of what uh, Jesus accomplished, just trying to uh, convey to us in, in the best way he can, just the person of Jesus. Um, and the more we go on, the more we see this kind of servant nature uh, of Jesus and the character coming through, that he came to be obedient to his father, um, to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, and I know you can't see that on the print there. Uh, it will be in the slides on the, on the internet afterwards, on the website. Um, but that's kind of where we've got to, chapter 7. Uh, we may get into chapter 8 this morning. Uh, we'll see how we go. Um, but uh, Mark, you can see, records a whole load of different miracles uh, and we're going to just look at some of these this morning as we go through. Um, it's been roughly catalogued as about 40 miracles um, that Jesus performs throughout his ministry uh, that are recorded across all four Gospels. So um, we just see just an incredible demonstration that Jesus was no ordinary man. Um, and the, the incredible thing is the way that his family rejected him. His disciples were slow of heart to understand and believe that the people were grateful for the blessings, but they still didn't really want to receive him as their Lord. Uh, and of course, the religious leadership, well, we're going to see them exposed this morning. Uh, once again, they didn't want uh, to accept him. Uh, you know, it's incredible how many people will take what they want out of Jesus, as it were. You know, they'll take the the parables, they'll take the stories, they'll take all the blessings that they think they can get. Um, they'll speak of Jesus a bit as being a great moral teacher, but they reject his claim to be Lord uh, because that impacts our hearts, that impacts who we are, and it necessitates that giving up the rights to ourselves. If he's to be Lord of our lives, then we can't be, and that's the sting, that's the challenge. As we go into chapter 7 then, just to remind you um, what Jesus said in Matthew 15, and we're going to see this expanded upon, uh, Jesus said there that you've made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. And we're going to see this issue of tradition come to the fore uh, in this chapter. Now, the Mishnah, this is a, a compilation of um, Jewish traditions, oral traditions that were passed down. It was kind of codified by the end of the second century AD. Um, the Mishnah stated that tradition is a fence around the law. Now, I've got no doubt that there were good intentions with the traditions that were put in place uh, by the Jewish leadership, that they had good intentions of trying to provide a way, a mechanism uh, to remind people that they needed to keep the law and to stop them breaking the law. There was obviously a respect for the law in the setting up and, uh, and so on of these traditions. But of course, as Jesus points out, Traditions actually do the opposite. They actually make the commands of God of no effect. And this is the danger. You know, we see exactly the same thing. If you go back and look at the early church, um, you know, after the time of Acts, when we get to the time of Constantine and the beginning of the, the Roman Catholic Church, if you look at what was going on with the, the church leadership, um, you know, you've got 
the North African churches that were really seeking to be obedient to God. You had, of course, the church in Rome, which was another one of the main uh, churches. You had, of course, the church in Antioch and then uh, Constantinople. And, and these gr- various areas were, were springing up. And then it started to be a debate as kind of who was really taking the lead. And you know, there was this desire to get it right, to keep it true. And so we end up with traditions and things starting to come in in just the same way into the Christian church. Now, sadly, that led to so many of these things, particularly within the Catholic church coming in, that have become a snare and a stumbling block for so many. So we see it not just with the the Jews and and here, um, but of course even within the church, we see exactly the same thing, how tradition can be so dangerous. The Jews viewed tradition, as we said, as protecting God's holy word. That's that's what they wanted it to do. Uh, And they wanted to try and assist God's people in keeping it. Um, But, of course, those good intentions we've just said led to some incredible absurdities, uh, some quite famous ones. Uh, And, as we just said, this is the idea of fences uh, in an effort to protect the Sabbath from being broken uh, by inadvertent labor, uh, the devout were given an incredible list of things not to do. So this is just regarding the Sabbath. There's many others that we could pick on. But just to give you some idea, one of them was that you were not supposed to look into a mirror on the Sabbath day. The reason for that, believe it or not, is because you might see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out, and that would be work. I mean, it, it sounds crazy to us, but these were the kind of things that this tradition had done. You couldn't wear false teeth on Shabbat on the Sabbath day either because if they fell out by picking them up, that would also be considered work. I mean, it's, it's bizarre. Um, apparently the rabbis uh, debated about a man with a wooden, wooden leg. Uh, what would happen if his home had caught fire on the Sabbath? Would it, was he allowed to go and retrieve it or not? And these were the kind of things that were debated. Uh, if someone were to spit on the ground on the Sabbath day, they had to be really careful not to put their foot where they'd spat because otherwise it would be seen to be cultivating the soil. Uh, and so that would then be seen to be working as well. You see how suddenly these traditions, which again were intended for good purpose, for good reason, suddenly became like a millstone around people's necks and totally obscured the real law that they were there in, in a sense designed to protect Well, we read in verse 1 of Mark 7, Then came together unto him the Pharisees and certain of the scribes, notices which came from Jerusalem. Now we've talked about this already. As they started to hear these miracles that Jesus was doing, this delegation is sent down to find out what's going on. Now the first thing that would have got their attention was right at the beginning of Mark's gospel, we saw that leper uh, being healed. Now, the requirement was that the leper had to go and to present his offering to the high priest, and the high priest would check him out and so on. That would require him going to Jerusalem. And so as he arrives in Jerusalem, they start to scurry through the Torah to try to find where it's recorded, what they're supposed to do. They've never done that. In the history of the nation of Israel, no leper had ever been cleansed to that point. And so people started talking. And this delegation is sent down to find out. And they've been kind of following Jesus around for a while now. And now this group come together Uh, from Jerusalem, uh, and they are trying to find fault. Look at verse 2. And when they saw some of his disciples, now there's a couple of things we need to highlight here, Um, but let's read this. When they saw some of his disciples eat bread with a defiled, that is to say with unwashed hands, they found fault. This is what they were intending on doing. They were looking to find fault. It's interesting, isn't it? They couldn't find any fault with Jesus, but they found fault with his disciples. 
you know, this is the best they could do, but this was good enough for them. This was a reason to, to attack Jesus. Um, there is a, a lesson here that we should be careful um, that people don't find fault with our Savior because of us. You know, we are told in Scripture that we should give no appearance of evil. Now, we'll, we'll go on and we'll see how Jesus responds to these Jewish leaders, but at the same time, that doesn't mean that it's okay for us just to go and do whatever we want, say whatever we want, you know, live our lives in whichever manner or fashion we choose. You know, we are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We are his representatives to this world. And what a shame that people so often can come and find fault with him because of us. You know, and there should be a challenge here. We should each think to ourselves, well, how do we represent our king? You know, aren't we a good ambassador? Now look, if people find fault with us because we stand for the truth, well, there's not a problem there, is there? But if they find fault with us because they see compromise in our lives, you know, there's nothing worse than somebody coming to you and saying, oh, I didn't think you'd do that. I thought you were a Christian. How cutting, how harsh those words can sound. You know, it's very much like Simon Peter standing around the campfire being challenged. You're one of his disciples, aren't you? Oh, no, 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 no. Straight away realizing when that cock grew, that, that, that he denied the one he loved. You know, and there's times that maybe we like, like to try and fit in with the crowd, the people around us. We don't want to stand out necessarily. And unfortunately, the world sees it. You know, you can't hide who you are. You know, the problem is once you make that decision to serve Jesus Christ, you'll never fit in with this world. And the world will recognize that you don't fit in. You know, and the worst thing you can then try and do is try and fit in. You know, we need to stand tall. We need to stand apart from this world. You know, we need to be his ambassadors. You know, and we are on duty 24-7. You know, and, and it goes not just when we're, we're in a, a kind of place of employment or out in shops or out in the public arena, but when we're at home. You know, when the windows are open and the neighbors hear the conversations that are going on in our home, and maybe they hear sometimes raised voices, what kind of impression does that create? Because they, they know this morning you've left and gone to church, I'm pretty sure. You know, they're not stupid. They see every Sunday you, you, you get up and you go out. You know, they may not know what you do or where you go, but, you know, it's, a, it's interesting how much people do understand and see. Well, just a little lesson here, Dan. Just make sure that that we do whatever we do in a way that doesn't bring the name of our Lord into disrepute. So, the issue then, these Pharisees, these scribes, they see the disciples eating bread with unwashed hands. Now, this is nothing to do with hygiene. This is nothing to do with them actually just going and washing as we would typically expect to do before we eat food. It's sensible, it's good. That's not what this is about. This was one of those traditions that had been brought in. And it wasn't a proper washing of the hands. It actually stems back to the the law. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll cover it more in a moment. Let's just carry on with the text for a moment. We read, For the Pharisees and all the Jews, except they washed their hands often, eat not holding the tradition of the elders. So this had become a traditional thing. It was originally something that was given for the priests to do. But I believe it was somewhere around about 200 BC, this had become something that everybody was supposed to now do. That before you ate food, you would go through this little ceremony of throwing some water in your hands. Not a proper washing of the hands. 
and somewhere you kind of like wash the, the forearms and their elbows and so on as part of this, this tradition. It wasn't nothing to do with cleansing. It was just part of this traditional thing. It had no real value whatsoever. And verse 4 says, And when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not, and many other things there be which they receive to hold. That's the washing of cups and pots and brazen vessels and of tables. Now, again, this isn't just a hygiene. This isn't washing up after a meal. This isn't cleansing you know, the, the, the things they're cooking with and making them uh, clean from a, a hygiene perspective. This is all part of this ceremonial practice they would go through. Now, these professionals that have come down, if you like, they're the theological hitmen of, of that time. You know, they were checking up to making sure things were being done according to the tradition. And of course, Jesus upsets them every time because he undermines the authority that they're basing what they do on. He's undermining their traditions. Now, the Mishnah, 186 pages, deal with this issue of uh, cleanliness, including this ritual washing and so on. Uh, and it comes from Exodus 30 and Exodus 40, uh, where there's this command that priests must wash their hands. Uh, and it came from that idea. So, as I say, get, uh, yeah, about 200 BC, uh, it becomes a thing that all pious Jews begin to do. Now, apparently, a rabbi who once omitted washing his hands before eating bread was excommunicated. They took this very seriously. And it's reported that another uh, rabbi, uh, it should be rabbi, not rabbi, so I apologize there. Uh, it should be a rabbi, it's a little typo, uh, we'll correct that. Um, definitely rabbi, not rabbit, uh, who suffered imprisonment, let's just keep you awake, right? Um, who suffered imprisonment under the Romans, nearly died because he was using his ration, daily ration of drinking water to ritually wash himself. Okay, so rather than using this water for the life-giving, you know, uh, sustenance that he needed was actually using it to wash himself in a ceremonial sense and nearly died as a result of that. And ultimately the concept of this true inner purity, which is really what Jesus is going to address in a moment, have been trivialized into this system of external washings. You know, and it indicated a wrong attitude toward the people. This is what this tradition they set up had done. And they conveyed the wrong idea of the nature of sin and of personal holiness. It, it relegated all of these things to just a, a very trivial thing that could be dealt with. You know, it's very much like we see uh, within the Catholic Church today, where they'll say a few Hail Marys and a few Our Fathers and so on. And, and they think that accomplishes something. It's exactly the same idea that was being uh, played out here. So then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why walk not the disciples according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Now before we just look at Jesus' response, once again, let me just highlight, these leaders, these people have come to find fault. And there are sadly many people in the church today that love to find fault. They love to point and say, that's not right, this isn't true, that's not the way it should be done. And a lot of that does come down to tradition. Um, we need to be extremely careful. I had the opportunity yesterday to speak to, to an individual. They were complaining about something that was, was happening in the church they go to. And not just that church, but other churches they'd attended and they were highlighting this issue. We were just talking through the basis for their position because it, it was actually, I mean, it'd be easy if I explain. They, they were complaining about some of the songs that were sung. Now, 
we've got to be careful. We've got to take everything back to Scripture. You know, when we sing songs here, you know, we look at the lyrics, we check them. Occasionally there are songs we'll reject. We say, no, actually we don't like it. Occasionally, if a song's really good but there's something we don't quite like, we might change the lyrics slightly um, just to make it so we're comfortable with it. You have to be careful. We have to be discerning. But at the same time, you can't just lump everybody into one category. Now, let's just take for one example Hillsong. I personally think that the Lord has used Hillsong to bless the Christian church around the world. Does that mean everything they've done is right? No. Does it mean every song that they've ever written has been spot on biblically? No, probably not. Does it mean that we then are condoning the ministry of Brian Houston and the teaching? Not necessarily. But then does it also mean that everything they do is wrong? No. You see, this is the danger that we start to become critical and look to find fault. Yes, discernment is so important. But you're going to be in heaven standing next to somebody that listened to worship or music by a singer-songwriter that maybe you didn't approve of. And they may have read a version of the Bible that you didn't like. We're going to have to accept that in eternity, in heaven, there's going to be all sorts of people that had different views and doctrines than we did. Does it mean they're saved? Well, if they're in heaven, of course they're going to be saved, aren't they? And we've got to accept that, yes, we need to strive for the truth. But at the same time, we can't just dismiss every other group of people that don't quite conform to our own personal standard and, and, and fit what we like. Heaven's not going to be full of just one group of Christians. Now, I do think greater blessing comes upon those who love his word, that labor in the word and doctrine. And Paul speaks about elders that labor in the word and doctrine being given double blessing. So absolutely we should focus on those things. And we should be careful. And those things, in terms of our own life, we need to be very careful. But I use the example of this, this individual I was speaking to yesterday. Marla's just starting to learn guitar, as some of you know, and she's starting to write a few of her songs. What would it do to Marla if I went to the, the first song she's written and said, well, Marla, that's really very, very bad because that's not quite right biblically. What would it do to her? It would destroy her, wouldn't it? You know, and there's a lot of people out there, even singer-songwriters that are writing their worship songs that sadly have not had the biblical depth that we would all love them to have been able to have. They're writing songs out of a heart that is in love with Jesus. And sometimes the lyrics may not be quite right. And we have to be cautious of which we do do and don't use, yes. We need to look beyond that. We need to look at what people are trying to communicate. So, yes, we have to be discerning. But the danger here, and we see it so much in the Christian church, is that people try and find fault. And it's such a dangerous thing. You know... You've got to come back to Matthew 13 where Jesus speaks about the wheat and the tares. They look so similar. It's hard to tell them apart. And it's just like it is in the church today. You know, there's all sorts of groups, you know, and we could talk about Vineyard, we could talk about Hillsong, we could talk about Bethel or whatever kind of group or where music's coming from or whatever kind of teaching and, you know, whatever. At the end of the day, We don't know people's hearts. And the danger is, when you start plucking up individuals and groups, you may be absolutely right that they were wrong. 
What about the person that had been blessed because of their ministry at that point? Early on in my Christian walk, I listened to a number of teachings by Benny Hinn. This was way before all of the controversy. You know, 20 years ago, Benny Hinn was teaching solid, Bible-based teachings. One evening, I was practicing with the band, and I'd taken a cassette, and I just used to typically take a teaching cassette. Some of you remember what cassettes were. Um, I used to take a teaching cassette, and so I could listen on the way to and from practices. And I just happened to grab one. It was, a, it was one of Benny Hinn's, and it was about the Holy Spirit. So I thought, okay, well, I'll listen to that. I got home after listening to it, and it had really opened my eyes to the reality of the person of the Holy Spirit. That night I walked in the door, and I was really excited. I wanted to tell mum and dad. I said, you never get because that's what I listened to. And I said, oh, before you tell, we watched this great video tonight all about the Holy Spirit. It was exactly the same teaching. They watched the video. I listened to the cassette the same evening. Was that coincidence? No, I don't think so. Did God use that? Oh, absolutely. Does it mean that everything Benny Hinn said is right? No, it doesn't. Does it mean that he's not saved or saved? Look, I don't know. He stands before God. Before his own master, he stands. Not for me to, to judge him. I would caution anybody now at listening to anything that Benny Hinn says. It comes down to the wheat and the tares. Now, if somebody had come to me at that point and said, oh, you mustn't listen to Benny Hinn, he's really dangerous, and you know, what would that have done to me at that early point in my Christian life, growing and learning? You see, God used that at that particular moment. And the whole issue here is exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 13, about you don't pluck them up because you might damage the true wheat. You see, let the tares and the wheat grow together until the time of the harvest. And even then, it's not our job to go and do the separating. Because the Lord will use his angels. And they will separate the wheat and the tares, and the wheat will be gathered into his barn. It's God's business. So absolutely, we've got to stand for truth. We must love God's word above and over and above everything else. And that is the standard. And everything must be checked against God's word, of course. Be very careful about uprooting other people and other ministries. Certainly, if it's totally, utterly unbiblical, we need to warn. And I've warned, and I've named names a number of times over the years when I've been teaching. You know, and, and we need to try and help and protect each other. But just be cautious that when you start uprooting people and uprooting ministries, you might be hurting others that the Lord is using to bless yeah, I, I think one of the worst translations of the Bible we've got is the good news. I think it's a terrible translation. Even We wouldn't necessarily go that far. But people have been blessed by it. What would it do to someone that's reading that if I went to them straight away and said, oh, that's dreadful, you shouldn't read that. Did you see the danger? You know, God can use these things. We need to be showing love and compassion. And if we've been given greater light in certain areas... Well, praise God, and let's use that to help others grow, not to tear them down. Because there are too many within the church that want to find fault. Talk more about that, and maybe we will some other time. But let's go on. So these these Pharisees, that's what they were doing. They were just trying to find fault, trying to tear down, not build up. So Jesus then responds, and he doesn't answer their question. 
And I think this is quite interesting because actually you've heard the kind of old adage that arguing with a fool proves there's two. Uh, you know, Solomon says similar things uh, in the book of Proverbs. You answer a fool according to his folly, you know, and so on. You know, Jesus doesn't just answer their question. Very wisely, he comes straight at them with scripture. Verse 6, he answered and said unto them, Well, has Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites? Wow. I mean, there's people standing around listening, and these are the authority of the day. And he says... Yeah, Isaiah's prophesied about you, and you're hypocrites. A word, we know exactly what that means. They were playing a part. As it is written, the people honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And that is it in a nutshell. What they were doing, they were going through the motions, they were giving lip service to this form of obedience, a tradition. But the real issue was the issue of the heart, and that was way away from where God would have had it. How be it in vain do they worship me? It's interesting, isn't it, that we can worship God in vain. And again, for teaching the doctrine, teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. You know, doctrine is so important, but when doctrine takes over and becomes the, the sledgehammer that you beat other people with, it becomes ineffective. You know, doctrine, I love doctrine. I love to get the details right. But at the same time, it's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Without love, what does it mean? Albeit in vain, do they worship me? Teaching for doctrines, the commandments of men. These are the things that men have said. And they've made it into doctrines that they now follow and teach others to follow. So people are now supposedly think they're worshipping God, but actually all they're doing is following a man-made practice. Sadly, that's the state of much of the church today. Many people in both the Anglican church, the Catholic church, and many other denominations think they worship God when they go to church on a Sunday because they do a set number of things. They, They perform certain rituals, they say certain responses. And they've been told that that's worship. Let's say, for laying aside the commandment of God, you hold the tradition of men. As the washing of pots and cups and many other such like things you do. So Jesus is exposing all of this, just bring that out. He said unto them, Full well you reject the commandment of God, that you may keep your own tradition. And this was quite a, a damning statement that Jesus is saying to them. They're saying, more or less, you know exactly what you're doing. You're rejecting God's word because you've placed your tradition above God's word. And that is exactly what they've done. One of the rabbis, Rabbi Eliezer, said this, He who expounds the scripture in opposition to the tradition has no share in the world to come. In other words, if you interpret scripture and it's contrary to tradition, well, you're wrong. Or scripture must be wrong. Or your understanding of it must be wrong. Tradition is the thing that never changes. And sadly, we see that echo down throughout the Catholic Church. And even very much in the Anglican Church. It is a greater offense, as another quote from the Mishnah, it's a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis than to contradict uh, Scripture itself. That's incredible. Let me read that again. It's a greater offense to teach anything contrary to the voice of the rabbis, that's their tradition, 
than to, predict, uh, than to contradict the scripture itself. In other words, it's worse if you go against the tradition than if you were to go against scripture. It's incredible how we twist these things around. That's what Jesus said about making the word of God no effect. Jesus carries on, For Moses said, Honour thy father and thy mother. And whoso curseth father or mother, let him die the death. This is what Moses had taught. But you say, if a man shall say to his father or mother, it is Corban, that is to say, a gift by whatsoever thou mightest be profited by me, he shall be free. The idea was that people were coming in and giving money to the priests rather than using it for taking care of their parents. And he says, and you suffer him no more, uh, sorry, and, and you suffer him no more uh, to do aught for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition which you have delivered, and many such things, so such like things you do. He's just saying, just give you an example. You do this. You allow people to give money to you, which lines your pockets. But that which the law requires, that you turn away from. And then notice this. I mean, there's no response recorded by Mark here. Now, Mark, again, seemingly getting this from Peter. Peter, right in the midst of all of this. You know, there doesn't seem to be any response. They don't know what to say to Jesus at this point. They've been publicly humiliated. Jesus used scripture to show them that they're wrong in front of these people that are there. And verse 14, and when he had called the people unto him, so now he calls everybody, come, come close. He said unto them, hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand. So now he's just going to carry on. And this is now in a big public arena, effectively. There is nothing from without a man that entereth into him can defile him. But the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. Jesus is going to just deal with this issue that they've raised about the, the washing, ceremonial washing of hands. As if that can make you clean. Spiritually. That, that was the issue. And Jesus is saying... Don't be so silly. You know, the stuff on the outside, that's not going to make you defiled before God. What will make you defiled before God is what's on the inside. Jesus says, if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. Kind of like that really, because it kind of traps anybody that rejects, puts immediately in that bracket that they don't have ears to hear. They don't want to listen. They're turning away intentionally. And when he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. Well, this isn't really a parable. They've kind of misunderstood. They're so used to him speaking in parables. Uh, and this, they assume, is the same thing. And he said unto them, Are you so without understanding also? Do you not perceive that whatsoever thing from without enters into a man it cannot defile him because it enters not into his heart but into the belly and goes out into the draught purging all meats. And he said that which comes out of a man, that defiles the man. You know, the whole idea that some little sprinkling of water or whatever can cleanse is nonsense. The real problem is the problem of the heart. And no matter sprinkling is going to do that. And, and sadly, people have got brought into this mindset that by a bit of sprinkling water on their hands before they eat they were they were undefiled and you know whatever they're eating wasn't so much the issue because they were already cleansed 
And then Jesus gives us this list. And this is this is hard. This was a bit hard for them to take. For those listening, and for us also, for from within, I see out of the heart of man proceed evil thoughts. All of us were in that category. You know, it shocks me sometimes. Thoughts that suddenly appear in my mind. Where did that come from? Horrible things sometimes. Adulteries. You know, we're all quick to try and justify ourselves with all of these things. But Jesus said, even if you look with lust in your heart, fornicators, murderers. Jesus said of murder, just having hatred towards a brother is the same thing. It comes from the same root. Thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lasciviousness, an evil eye. Looking at people in a bad way is to condemn or to look for opportunity against them. Blasphemy, pride, foolishness. And we, we could spend a morning just, just dwelling on these things and looking at how our lives are so full of these things apart from the grace of God. And Jesus says all these evil things come from within and defile the man. That's the real problem. This is the problem that Jesus has come to address it's not the food you eat that's the problem. Of course, this is, this is a really big thing because Jesus, in a sense here, and a lot of commentators have, have highlighted this, it's a kind of a, very much a watershed moment in Jesus' ministry because all the teaching, all the instruction about foods and what should or shouldn't be eaten, you know, the, the clean foods, the unclean, the kosher foods and so on, Jesus is scrubbing all of that to the side. So it doesn't matter what you eat in that sense. That can't defile you. Defilement comes from within. Now, of course, later we're going to get into the book of Acts. And in Acts, we find that sheet lower before Peter with all sorts of animals on it. And at that point, the Lord says, Peter, take and eat. And he says, not so, Lord. It's a sentence that doesn't really work together. You can't say not so and Lord in the same sentence. But of course, Peter brought up in his Jewish tradition had the mindset that he couldn't eat an oyster because that would make him unclean. And what Jesus is saying here is, don't be so silly. That can't make you unclean. Now, the reason God gives those those laws, everything in the law is there for a reason. There's no meaningless laws given. The, The things that God instructs us in regard to food and so on, they make sense. God says, don't eat things that scavenge off other things. Because that contain parasites and all sorts of other stuff that's not good for you. We know that now. Of course, my argument with bacon is that today pigs are bred purely for food and they, they're given better food so they're not just scavenging around anything else. But So I, I think bacon's a bit better today than it probably was. But, but the point is that food in and of itself cannot make you unclean before God. And this is what Jesus is saying. And this is a real shock to the Jewish mindset at this time. But just exposing the real root of the problem is within and this is what Jesus came to do. This is exactly what we see with the Beatitudes. Jesus comes and shows that however good you thought you were, God's standard is way higher. With those comments about adultery and murder and, and so on, showing that in our heart is the real problem. It's impossible to live up to the standard that Jesus sets here. That's the point. 
And from thence he arose and went into the borders of Tyre and Sidon and entered into a house and would have no man know it, but he could not be hid. This multitude just following after him. You know, Peter, almost you could see him again talking to Mark and sharing these things and saying, look, we tried to get away from everybody just for a bit, but they followed us, they found out where we were. And we're told, for a certain woman whose young daughter had an unclean spirit, heard of him and came and fell at his feet. So this mum, desperate for her daughter's health, for her mind. So the woman was a Greek, a Syrophoenician by nation. And she besought him that he would cast forth the devil out of her daughter. She believed in him. She believed that he could do this. She'd obviously heard what he'd done already. Jesus said unto her, let children first be filled. He's speaking of Israel. Jesus had been sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He's saying, I've, I've not come to you. I've come to Israel. Let the children first be filled, for it is not me to take the children's bread and cast it unto the dogs. And she answered and said unto him, yes, Lord. Yet the dogs under the table eat of the children's crumbs. And he said unto her, for this saying, go thy way, the devil is gone out of thy daughter. Just instantly, Jesus sees the faith that she has. And she recognizes, seemingly, there was something special about Israel, the people that he'd been sent to. And her response indicates that. As a result, Jesus instantly delivers her daughter. And when she was come to her house, she found the devil gone out and her daughter laid upon the bed. And again, departing from the coast of Tyre and Sidon, he came unto the Sea of Galilee through the midst of the coast of Decapolis. And they brought unto him one that was deaf and had an impediment in his speech. And they beseech him to put his hand upon him. We are in that area now, back down the Sea of Galilee. You come down the, the side of uh, Gardea. This is the, the Decapolis around that area, uh, down from uh, Bethsaida. This is the area that Jesus has now come down to. And he took him aside from the multitude and put his fingers into his ears and he spit and touched his tongue. It's amazing how many people try and make a big thing of this and this is the way to perform miracles. And da, da, da. Jesus doesn't seem to operate on any particular... Uh, there's no strategy. There's no particular method. It's just God's grace. God touching whom he wants to touch. Verse 34, and looking up to heaven, he sighed and saith unto him, Ephrathah, that is, be opened. And straight away his ears were opened. I mean, this man hadn't heard anything. Suddenly he hears the voice of Jesus. I mean, we could make a sermon of this. Spurgeon, no doubt, would, would spend a whole morning just talking about that sentence. Because it's the gospel, isn't it? that we don't hear anything until he opens our ears. That's when we start to hear. You know, people in the world are totally deaf. They, they think they hear. They hear all sorts of noise and all sorts of things. But they don't hear. They don't really understand. They cannot perceive but by the grace of God. And until they hear his voice, they won't hear a thing. And you can talk to people till you're blue in the face until the Holy Spirit is doing something. And straight away his ears were open and the string of his tongue was loosened and he spoke. I wonder what his first words were. Jesus, we're told, charged them that they should tell no man. 
You see, once again, we see this throughout the Gospels. Jesus doing these miracles and saying, don't tell anybody. Keep it quiet. And it's kind of almost counterintuitive. You think, surely the whole purpose of this is that we want to you know, tell everybody who Jesus is so that the nation would go, yes, you're the Messiah. But of course, Jesus knew that he hadn't come to be hailed as king, to be seated on the throne of David on this occasion. That's something that's going to happen in the future. This time he was coming, as Isaiah 53 tells us, as a suffering servant. He charged them that they should tell no man. But the more he charged them, so the more a great deal they publicized it. It's incredible, and people have commented on this before, that you know Jesus tells these people, don't say anything, and they did, and we've been told to go and spread the gospel, and we keep quiet. We kind of get the reverse. We need to. We're the ones that should be going out and sharing these things. And, you know, and just get Mark's heart in this. Mark is wanting to convey just how incredible Jesus Christ is what he did, these miracles that were taking place. The fact that he put the Pharisees in their place. He was speaking about something that was so much bigger and greater than this world. And notice verse 37, and they were beyond measure astonished. Beyond measure astonished. That's quite a a big expression, isn't it? Struggling for words to try and convey. Superlatives, not enough here. Saying, He has done all things well. He makes both the deaf to hear and the dumb to speak. That is what Jesus Christ will do. Those in the world who are deaf right now, and I'm not talking physically deaf, although those also can be healed, but those that are deaf that do not hear God's voice, they can hear. They can be made to hear. And the dumb to speak. People that currently, maybe like Paul was, intent on breathing out threats against the church, can be turned into the greatest evangelist probably ever in the history of the world. Yeah, that's what the grace of God does. You know, again, just get the heart of Mark. This Jesus that he's trying to convey to you, this wonderful, compassionate, loving Savior that came to show us that there is no hope in the flesh. Because within our flesh, it's just defilement. But Jesus came to set us free from all of that. Let's bow our hearts. We'll pick up from there into chapter 8. Read ahead uh, for next week, Lord willing. Let's set our hearts. Father, thank you for this reminder this morning. That Lord, doing things doesn't put us in good standing with you. Lord, no action, no act, Lord, no intention on our part can make any difference whatsoever. The only thing that truly cleanses is the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, help us to take this really to heart. And Lord, to stop trying to pretend in any way, if we are, Lord, to be righteous. Because Lord, in and of ourselves, we have nothing. Lord, let's be clothed in the righteousness of Christ, in his completed work. And then, Lord, let us walk in a way that is glorifying and pleasing to you. Lord, as we said earlier, let us be ambassadors. Lord, who don't bring your name into disrepute. Lord, who love your name more than we love our own names. And Lord, to be reminded of this incredibly gracious and loving and compassionate Savior who has called each one of us, who loves us. 
who gave his life for us. Lord, impress these things upon our hearts, we pray, as we go from here this day, Lord. And may we keep walking through grace, by faith. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Let's uh, fellowship together over some teas and coffees.